Welcome to Fintech at Haas. Today I'm joined by Betsy McCormick, Head of Customer Success at Nova Credit. Nova Credit is a cross-border credit bureau, and before joining, Betsy worked at McKinsey after graduating from Berkeley Haas in the MBA class of 2015. Betsy, thank you for joining me today. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited to be chatting with you. How have things been at Nova Credit over the last few months, given the pandemic that's been going on? Have you had much change to your working situation? Yes and no. I think like everyone, it's been kind of a wild ride and, and we've certainly had our fair of challenges. I think, you know, for us, I know we'll, we'll get into it a little bit later, but we're really reliant upon two systems functioning. The first is the credit system. So people going out and asking for credit cards and credit products. And the second is the immigration system functioning. And with recent executive orders, really neither of those are happening at the level that they have historically. And our whole business is at the intersection of credit and immigration. So it's really forced us, I think, to do a couple of things. One is rethink our relationships with our customers. That's kind of my role and happy to go into detail there later, but what does it mean to really retain a customer in a time of crisis? And also I think more excitingly, perhaps um, thinking about like our value add and our product and what should our product be? And is this a good opportunity to go a little bit deeper on expansion opportunities? So it's mostly been good, but I think caused a lot of reflection for us as we think through how do we weather this and, and come out stronger as a company. I think many companies have been going through similar challenges and it's given that time, as you mentioned, to reflect on what you're doing, yeah. where you're heading and what the industry that you're in is going to be like in the post-COVID world. I think not all industries are going to be the same. Some are going to change, some will stay relatively intact. And I guess, you know, the two that you mentioned, the latter, the immigration system is probably the one that's going to face the most amount of change. I know with my immigration yeah. Uh, situation with school. It's been a roller coaster ride over the summer. It's been very challenging, but I think that time of reflection is, is definitely a good time to take advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be great to get, for those who aren't familiar with Nova Credit, if you can just give a broad overview of the company. So we're basically a cross border credit bureau. And what that means is that we are able to take someone's overseas credit history and allow them to use that in the United States. So for individuals who may um, be from the U.S., you may not know that um, if you're recently arrived in this country, you have no credit history. And the institutions today, like uh, any credit institution, so a credit card company or a mortgage company or a student lender, um, has no way to really underwrite you and say, yes, I'm willing to make this person a loan if you don't have credit history in the United States. So what we do is we pull in data from overseas credit bureaus, reformat it to a U.S. standard, and then allow those lenders in the United States to use that data in order to actually offer a credit product, like a credit card to someone who's recently moved here. And for people that do come over to the US and may not be familiar with Nova Credit, what are the other options out there? And what's the key problem that you're solving? Is it the rates on other products are, are very high or there is just nothing available? In some ways, both of those are correct. It, it depends a lot on what the product you want is. So for a credit card, for example, you can get something called a secured card, which typically is a really low limit. So you basically give the bank $500 and they keep it <laughs> to make sure you're not going anywhere. And then they give you a $500 credit card. 
which is actually it's a great product in a way it's a way that a lot of people do start building their credit history but one it's dependent on you having $500 in cash that you're willing to let a bank sit on and two $500 is not that high of a credit line um, especially if you're just moving somewhere and you're trying to establish your life you probably have a lot of needs and $500 may not be sufficient to cover those needs but secured cards are are out there. Um, and like I said, a lot of people do use them to get a foot in the door. Um, cash, frankly, a lot of people end up using cash or their overseas credit cards, which end up having really high fees. Um, and in some cases, you just don't, you don't have an alternative. Um, I don't know if there you know, are many mortgage lenders out there that would allow you to get a mortgage without, without a credit history. Um, how long does it take once someone is in the US to, to build up a credit history? Is it something that can be done within three to six months or is it typically they need longer than six months of showing kind of regular payments to a, a card? Uh, it, it's at least a year and it's longer if you want to build a really high credit history. One key element of your credit history is how long you have managed to maintain a positive record of credit. So in some ways, by definition, the system won't allow you to have a really high credit score unless you've been managing credit for a couple of years. So I would say after one year, you can probably get approved for some products, but maybe not everything that you would want to get. Um, it's really closer to three, maybe even five years before you'll have a really stellar credit history. And that's three to five years of uh, making on-time payments every month. Yeah, it's a very long time to be potentially locked out of the system and credit scores are used in so many different things yeah. that you might not realize are credit products like mobile phone contracts and sometimes totally. apartment leases and, and things like that. Yeah, even um, if for anyone who wants like a cable box from your cable company, they'll do a credit check before they lease you a cable box. You know, it's a $100 piece of equipment, but they're still checking your credit. It's really... I think incredible and many people don't realize how frequently their credit is consulted as a part of the sort of day-to-day -day products that they're looking to acquire. I think coming from that situation where I came from the UK to the US, I'm very fortunate to be living with some Americans and I've managed to piggyback on onto theirs, but you know, <laughs> not everyone's in that, that same situation. So I think there's, there's definitely a real need for a product like Nova Credit. It'd be interesting to actually understand why do you think there hasn't been a international credit report for an individual so far yeah it's a really good question um and i think there are three core reasons so the first is really a market dynamics today there are really three big credit bureaus globally so it's transunion equifax and experian and they each own approximately a third of the market globally. Um, a bunch of them, you know, they have a bunch of kind of, not subsidiaries, but offices in, in other countries where um, they, they're they able to run the credit bureaus for those international markets. The challenge is historically, they, they haven't really liked working together. And because they each own a third of the market, none of them really is able to access data globally. TransUnion has its slice and they're more dominant in um, the Americas, for example, but they lack um, access to data in other parts of the world. Though that's changing, especially through some acquisitions recently. But in order for any one supplier to provide global data in a truly global way, 
Um, you either need a third party such as Nova or you need all three of those agencies to collaborate and they, they just don't really have a history of doing that. Um, I think an additional reason and, and rather two additional reasons and, and ones that have I think, further hampered that collaboration. So the first is regulatory. Different countries have very different laws about what you're allowed to include in a credit report and what you're not. So for example, in India, gender is typically included in the credit report, whereas in the U.S. it is like totally illegal to have gender play any part in what your credit score is. And so we do a lot of work to scrub out certain data points and to make sure that from a regulatory and compliance standpoint, all of our international bureaus are, um, you know, we're taking that data and then, and then reformatting it to a U.S. standard. That's just a lot of work from a regulatory and compliance lens. And I think the third is really the technical piece. So every single bureau overseas has a different technical setup, a different tech stack that they use, different APIs. And so, you know, even TransUnion transferring data from one country to another, they're still dealing with those technical issues. So by the time you add up the market dynamics, the regulatory challenges and the technical challenges of integrating this data, no one's really wanted to touch it <laughs> and no one's been able to figure out how do you crack on all three of those pieces um, and says so you know as far as i know we've gotten further than anyone else and don't don't really have any direct competitors in this space yeah i mean i, I completely understand the regulations are, are just so different and different countries and the different financial institutions in those countries each consider slightly different things as well when they're yep. assessing someone's credit so they want to have different bits of information it just sounds like a minefield. Yeah. And then getting a U.S. underwriter. So imagine a huge bank, which is by definition a risk mitigation institution, um, and, and getting them comfortable with the fact that we have taken that overseas data and truly formatted it to U.S. standard. That That's a long conversation, and it, it, takes, um, it, it takes a while before you can get all of the right players at the bank comfortable with using this data and so it's it's the risk team but it's also it's the privacy team it's the fraud team it's the compliance team it's the legal team you know by the time you've walked all of those those teams through what it really means to be pulling in data and getting them comfortable with it um you know a lot of, a lot of time has passed and um, so i think another challenge you know that we see and maybe perhaps another reason that nobody else has kind of figured out what we figured out is that sales cycles end up being really long um, because, you know, being first to market and, and convincing institutions to use a brand new data source is, um, just carries a lot of challenges with it. I think a lot of fintechs are in that boat, the ones that are trying to go B2B and sell directly into the banks. It's a very, very long sales cycle. And sometimes just yeah. sustaining the business while you go through that is a challenge in itself. Yeah, we, um, our BD team is really incredible. They work really hard, but yeah, they, they face this every day and we're trying to sort of think through how can we improve our product, how can we improve our operations, how can we sort of be ready for that next big customer that's that's ready and excited to launch with us. So you're currently head of customer success at Nova Credit. Yeah. What does your role entail generally and your day-to-day -day look like? Normally think of the customer as the person taking out the credit card, but also I guess the customers are the, some of the financial institutions you're getting to use and partner with the product as well. Yeah, I think you're hitting on something really key about our business model, which is we are a B2B to C business model. And there are a handful of companies out there that, that do that. We're not totally unique, but it does make it 
um, sort of adds a layer of complication. And so, because you're absolutely right, we really have two main customers that we have to serve. And so the first is we will occasionally refer to them as consumers or newcomers. Um, and these are the individuals who are new to the U.S. and are actually going through our application to receive their credit report. Um, the second type of customer is that enterprise customer. Um, and so my team really oversees both. So I oversee both the consumer or newcomer support function. So anyone who reaches out to us to try to better understand their data um, or may have a dispute about their data or wants to share feedback on the process. So that team. And then the other side of it is the enterprise partnerships team. So um, working really closely with some of the biggest banks in the U.S. to ensure that they are using our product, that they love our product, that they want to grow with us over time. Which of those two sides takes up the most resources and time? Yeah, probably the enterprise side. Not probably, definitely the enterprise side. Not to sort of diminish the importance of the consumer side. I mean, it's critical that consumers appreciate and use our product. But um, the way that we work from a revenue standpoint is is our revenue really comes from those enterprises. And so it's really critical to have have those relationships be really strong and be really connected to those customers. And they're just complicated too, right? Like we work, I already mentioned a couple of the departments we work with at banks. I think on top of that, you know, on top of risk, privacy, legal compliance, um, we work usually with fair lending and um, we work with marketing. We work with their product team, their engineering team. I, I sometimes joke that I know the org structure at our customers better than many of the people who work for those customers because we are required to build relationships and help so, so many different entities get comfortable with a brand new product and get comfortable with working with a startup. You know, it's, um, I think for banks, it is a risk to go ahead and say, yeah, we're going to work with this, this new startup and, and take a chance that they can really support us and help us in the way we need to be supported. Um, so yeah, the enterprise side is, um, it's really fun, but it's, it brings a lot of challenges at the same time. Do you use the enterprise as the customer funnel? I guess you get customers generally through them, or do you market yourself independently for people to sign up with you guys? Both. So um, I can I can share a little bit about American Express since they're our, sort of, um, our first customer and we're, we're public about our work with them. Um, so they're, you know, they get many, many applications every day and um, our capability is marketed to anyone who comes into their application. And so by naturally they end up drawing, um, drawing people to their site who end up using our product. At the same time, we have a consumer facing portal. We actually launched a I launched a revamp of it a couple weeks ago, and it's super cool. You, if you are a newcomer, you can go to our website, and depending on what country you're from, you can pull your credit history, and we'll show it to you similar to the way, for example, I think like Credit Karma does this. You can go and see what your U.S. credit history is. So we're now enabling people to do that who are newcomers to the United States. And then we show them their credit score and give them the chance to go find a credit card that will be a good fit for them based on their credit. And so... Through that mechanism, we also kind of send people to our customers, such as American Express. So it's it's both. What's the biggest challenge with dealing with getting new enterprise customers? Is it getting comfortable with working with a startup or is it more them getting comfortable with the data? So I think it really starts with the data and getting 
primarily risk teams comfortable with using a new data source. Um, the challenge that we find is that once risk says yes, you still need a lot of other people to say yes, and you need someone to pay for it. And so you have to get risk excited about the quality of the data and the fact that it is predictable, it is um, an equivalent to US data, it will tell you someone's likelihood of default. Um, but then you need to get compliance comfortable with the fact that this data is not discriminatory in any way, um, that it is a positive thing for both consumers and the bank, and that it's really kind of enhancing the bank's capabilities and not exposing the bank to undue risk from a legal standpoint. And then you need to get marketing, frankly, to pay for it um, and a number of other kind of groups along the way. Um, and so that process, it's just slow. It just takes a while. And so the, the marketing piece is really about, well, how big is this market? How do we even find newcomers? Most banks have never, have never done marketing targeted at this group because they've kind of rejected them out of hand. So how do you suddenly put together a marketing campaign and really take advantage of this like, brand new opportunity? And so then you need to get the marketing team comfortable with, yes, the opportunity is real. It's big, and you know we can help you figure out how to how to market to newcomers because that's what we do. You know that's our bread and butter, and um, and so all of that is really really hard. I would say once you kind of get beyond that sales element, there's a real implementation challenge too because our product is very different than how one might check a U.S. credit history. All of that's in the back end. Half the time, you don't even know you're giving someone permission to grab your U.S. credit history because you enter your social, you check a box. Most people probably don't read the terms and conditions and then you're done. But our process is very different. It's, it's really all about consumer permission data. And what that means is the consumer is very actively going through an application. And we have to request data fields that are, that are unique, like address in your foreign uh, sort of overseas address or overseas ID number. Um, pieces that are a little bit different. And so it's, it's a much more active application. Um, and so how do you get a bank to include that in their online application? It requires a lot of just rethinking their technical systems, rethinking, really resetting expectations for what the consumer journey should look like, um, resetting expectations around, um, you know, what is the average application completion time if suddenly you have a new part of the application and so all of, all of those details when you're actually implementing a brand new process um, it additionally takes a little bit of re-education around, around how the newcomer experience should be different from the experience for someone who's lived in the U.S. and built up their U.S. credit history already. And the data that you're giving banks, I guess it encompasses everything that they would get from a traditional U.S. credit bureau, like one of the three you mentioned, but you're probably also providing them with a lot of supplementary information for them to use in their risk systems as well. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, we do and we can. Um, we are, as I sort of referenced earlier, constrained by, from a regulatory standpoint, what you're allowed to include in a credit report. Um, but our, our reports are by and large on par with U.S. standards. And then to the degree that a customer may require like very specific metrics, we can provide um, calculations and metrics for them that are core to their unique underwriting. And um, so we're, we'll usually do that um, when it's requested and we'll also work really closely. Um, our credit analytics department is run by a woman named Sarah Davies, who is, um, we like to brag about her. She's, she's really a celebrity in the credit reporting <laughs> world to the extent that such a thing exists. Um, but she's really incredible and has been 
um, really helpful for our customers in terms of helping them understand how to use our data and getting them comfortable with, um, with really understanding how to take what we provide and turn it into an underwriting strategy. You kind of mentioned metrics and I guess digging into more about your role. What metrics do you use to assess how well the team is doing? Is it how quickly you answer like customer queries or the length of time it takes to onboard a customer, whether that's enterprise or a, a consumer? One day, I think we'll measure those things. Um, today, we're a little earlier in the sense that we're really focused on a handful of very large banking institutions. Um, you know, American Express, again, is the um, example that I can share a little bit more about. And our model is really competitive. We act like consultants in terms of how we interact with these banks. I joke that um, there's a woman on my team who's responsible for the day-to-day of American Express, and I sometimes joke that she's basically an employee and should have a badge to their office. Um, and so we get really involved in the day-to-day. And and so I think sort of the typical metrics how a success team would operate um, don't quite apply because we're still really in learning mode. And everything that we're doing is, is to really help us figure out how are we going to scale later and what are, what are the metrics that will matter later. Um, so to actually answer your question, I think there are two things we look at really closely. One is just adoption. How much do they use our product? And trying to tie that adoption to different initiatives, whether they're marketing initiatives or adding a new data set or um, sort of any number of pieces that are elements that we could incorporate into our partnership to really grow the partnership. Do those work? You know, how do we actually get customers to use our data more? Um, and that that obviously translates into revenue, but it's, so it's really that question of how much are they using our product? Um, and the second is thinking through a customer health score. And and because some of the elements you referenced, we do incorporate, it's kind of a composite score of different pieces that are really important to us. Um, some of them are numerical, you know, how many support cases are created every month. Um, but a lot of it is really around like how deep is this relationship? And I think one, one thing that we found to be really important in working with large enterprises is the quality um, and the breadth of relationships really matter. Um, if you're getting a bank to do something that's new and for many people uncomfortable, it's so deeply important to have individuals in that bank who get it and who want to go to bat for you and who are going to say, yes, like I love Nova. I want to see Nova grow and I'm going to help Nova grow. And that has, has really translated into success. And so we try to find somewhat quantitative way of measuring the quality of and, and breadth of relationships in a bank. So that's probably the bulk of the health score. Yeah, I think having that internal champion of, of your product is really important and helps keep it moving because I'm sure yeah. it's very easy for something to get lost in the big machine that is a financial institution especially you know people leave as well and what was someone's priority might not necessarily translate to the next person's yeah we've had a couple of customers where we were like just about to sign a deal and then the whole team turned over and we were back at scratch and built up like the whole process again it hurts but you're right the the flip side is that is sometimes you can that that supporter who left you can Usually they just go to another bank and then you go figure out if that bank wants your product. So it's not all bad, um, but it does slow us down for sure. I saw that back at the start of the year in a timely fundraise, Nova raised about $50 million in funding. How is that going to be used to help 
scale the business? Yeah, so we got really lucky with timing there. I'm very grateful our founders had the, I don't know if it was foresight or luck, but um, that we're in a strong position from a funding standpoint right now. So to be honest, I don't think we're going to do anything that's really radically different. Um, we've, we have hired some, especially on the engineering side of the house, but we're really focused still on building out that core product and thinking through what are the adjacencies that we can move into based on our, our skill set and our talents. You know, the, the reality is that building a global infrastructure product, which is really what we're doing, it's just, it's slow. It takes time. You know, you need to go out, you need to evaluate the credit bureaus across the globe, sign deals with them, integrate that data, um, sort of reformat it to the U.S. standard and then go sell that to, frankly, very slow moving and conservative institutions. It just takes a while. And so we're not trying to go out and spend all of our money really quickly because that would be putting ourselves in a pretty dangerous position. We need to do the product, the justice it deserves by acknowledging that that process requires time. So we're kind of just keep on chugging, you know, we're, we're hiring a bit, we're expanding our data sources, we're starting to think through are there um, less traditional data sources that we could incorporate into our product, for example, bank transaction data or identity data, but it's all really about building out that global infrastructure so that underserved individuals can be underwritten, um, can be underwritten today for products where they're just getting rejected. It's interesting you mentioned alternative data sources. I know there's a lot of new fintechs out there that use di- use different data. Yeah. You know, they might look at your mobile phone location history and that type of thing. Is that something you see Nova potentially doing in the future? And you're providing actually more accurate data than what you might get from experience. Yeah. So we definitely are looking into this. We have a very specific philosophy about what type of data we want to work with. And there are a lot of companies that are doing pretty creative and incredible things with uh, a lot of data sources. We are staying close to home in the sense that we are really only interested in data sources that have a true risk indicator and a true risk signal. And I'm sure, you know, those companies, and I'm not an expert on those companies or the data sources they're using, they will um, perhaps also sort of say that that data has a risk signal, but we're staying close to home in terms of what is the type of data that that we know has that indicator. So to get a little bit more concrete, bank transaction data is very similar to credit data in that way. You can see how someone has managed their bank account. Are they a responsible steward of inflows and outflows of cash? You know, do they overdraw their account every month or do they consistently have a cushion? Um, a couple of other examples are around sort of payments data for things like utilities. Um, you know, do people pay their phone bill? Do people pay their electric bill? Um, that Those types of data sources are very similar in many ways to credit data. And so for us, it really complements what we're doing. Um, but it, it's, you know, we're not taking like Instagram or Facebook data that hasn't historically been aligned with kind of how we think about credit risk. And how we think about providing values to credit officers. One area in the UK I've seen a lot of innovation is that 
traditionally rent payments aren't included Un unlike a mortgage payment rent payments aren't really considered part of the the credit report and i think if i'm understanding it correctly the same is true in the us and i, I would think that someone that's renting for three years always pays their rent on time that is a good indication of risk uh, is that something you guys would like to include or do include yeah no i think you're absolutely right um, and it, they're actually starting in the U.S. A couple of the bureaus are starting to think through how can we incorporate that into a risk indicator or credit score. So I think you're dead on in terms of the value of that data. Um, it's something that we have not yet looked into in a lot of depth. It makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the one of the challenges of being a, a startup is, especially a startup with no competitors, <laughs> there's so much you can do. <laughs> and... Um, figuring out what is the next product, what is the next area of focus can be really hard and hard in a good way because you have too many things to choose among. Um, and this is where we really rely on Sarah Davies, the woman I, I mentioned earlier, because she, she's she been in the, um, the industry for years and years and kind of understands risk inside and out. And so we really trust her to, to think through what is kind of that next logical step and for us it's been around bank transaction data and so that's what we're really starting to play with now i think actually in europe a lot of banks are more comfortable with using bank transaction data as a part of the process but that's actually pretty new in the united states and u.s banks are just starting to really wrap their heads around how can we use this in an underwriting context and what does it mean to look at someone's inflows and outflows of cash as opposed to a, a credit score and just lastly, to touch on you know the future of Nova, is, is the big idea is to build relationships with most of the countries that large groups of immigrants come to the US from and to build relationships so they can have access to credit as soon as they arrive? That's part of it. Um, I think the, there are a couple of other elements too that, that we believe will unlock growth for us in the future. So the first is actually looking beyond the US. So where else can we essentially open open offices and find customers who are interested in our data? We're actually looking at the UK right now, pretty seriously, trying to understand um, if that would be a good sort of next place for us. There are a handful of other countries on our, our short list of, of areas where it may make sense for us to expand. But ultimately the vision is what you said, but just bigger, you know, anyone who moves from anywhere to anywhere will be able to take their credit data with them. So really unlocking that like global migration, global migration patterns and, and and allowing that that vision to be true. So it's not just someone coming to the US, but um, so that that's a part of it is what does that international strategy look like? And we're starting to really tackle that right now. Um, I think the second area for growth, and we've chatted about this a little bit, but how what is our consumer facing vision? So, you know, we are as I referenced, the, we are mostly an enterprise-facing company in terms of our product and um, how the team team time is split. But we also have this super cool consumer-facing product. And you know, how do we how do we grow that? How do we use that? What do consumers want from us from a direct consumer standpoint? So we're starting to be really thoughtful and like, how do we grow our consumer presence? And what does that what does that mean? You know, there there are a lot of companies who I really admire, who I have this incredible consumer-facing credit product. And what is the role of an international um, 
you know, credit bureau and, and adding to that community. Um, and then I think the third, when I think about the future is product expansion. Um, what are the other, you know, the, the thing that we're really good at is building APIs into very disparate data sources and pulling them back and standardizing them in ways that are really intuitive for an underwriter here in the U.S. Well, there are a lot of data sources that can potentially be added to that. Um, and how do we think about prioritizing which one and what will be most appealing to underwriters and, and what is um, appealing to us in terms of maintaining our core philosophy around what what is true risk data and what is allowing underserved individuals to, to get approved for products. I hope one day that there's something like a, a credit passport um, that might, you know, match up with your identity. And wherever you move a financial institution, you can scan it and it has all of your history in the format that they, that they want. I think that would be an amazing thing. You get it, yes. Just to quickly touch on before we finish your time at Haas, what are your memories there? How, what did you spend your time doing? What did you enjoy? Yeah. Gosh, I have so much Haas love. I could spend the entire time talking about how much I love Haas. Um, I did everything. I don't necessarily recommend that as a path for people. <laughs> um, so, okay. So some of the main things I spent time on, I was in HSA. So I spent a lot of time with the admissions team and thinking through how do we get like the best and brightest um, into Haas and excited about Haas and um, make them want to come to Haas. Um, my more um, academic interests were in the finance side of things. So I spent a lot of time on um, sort of any and every extracurricular related to impact investing. There were a bunch then, there are probably even more now. Um, I, I graduated five years ago. So was, I think Haas was just starting to build that um, those experiences then. Um, I decided my my internship, um, I, I got very serious about exploring finance. So I actually did my internship in investment banking, which was a total departure for me in terms of what I'd done previously. So I spent a lot of time learning like, truly like, what is the stock market? I called my parents to be like, will someone tell me what the stock market is? It's like kind of a miracle. I, uh, I still sometimes wonder how I ended up figuring all of that out. Um, so I, I also just, um, I don't know, I love the Bay Area. I love spending time with good people. So I did like all of the trips, all of the parties. Um, I didn't sleep very much. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, that, that's the, the sad thing. But hopefully things open up a bit, probably in the new year, I think. And it just means I'll be hanging out with a small group of friends rather than larger groups. Yeah. What are some of the things you learn at Haas that you still use in your day-to-day, -day, whether that's from the classroom or other experiences that, you know, have really formed part of your core skill set that you still use? Yeah, so I think a couple of things stand out. The first is, um, this is something I think about often, like personal life, like professional life, um, negotiations was one of the um, more memorable classes I took. And I remember um, the professor said something to the extent of very few people in this world are truly irrational. So if your perception is that you're having a conversation with an irrational person or your first instinct is like, this person is nuts, odds are it means you don't actually understand them and understand what they care about. And that just like really hit home for me, I think, because 
you know, especially most of my roles have always been customer facing, partner facing, client facing. So I built a lot with external parties. And it's so easy to say, like, oh, they don't get it, or that person's crazy. And just to take a step back and be like, no, no, I probably don't get it. <laughs> I'm like, what do I need to go learn? So that that like really stuck with me. Um, I, I think the, the other piece that was critical for me, and this may resonate with some people and less with others, is having come from a nonprofit background, I saw a very particular slice of the world. And um, and I, I loved that work that I that I did. I worked in microfinance at a company called Kiva before Haas, and I, I reflect so fondly on Kiva and what I learned there and my memories there. But it's a really different world when you're in that of, of raising capital and you know, things like revenue, and profitability mattering in just like a different way. And I think especially being on, you know, Nova is venture funded. And so there, there are a lot of sort of critical elements of um, how we operate and, and just some of the core tenets of like strategy and operations um, really opened my eyes to it, just a different way to think about participating in a company and what the success of a company Meant. You know, for anyone who worked in management consulting prior to Haas, they're going to be like, well, duh, Betsy, everybody knows that. But at least for me, it was, I think, a, a really different way to think about what mattered in a company and how sort of what what is success. Um, and the thing that I love about that is I bring with me like the mission part of Kiva and the importance of doing something that, that you really care about. And incidentally, that's probably one of the main reasons I chose Haas is because I felt like the social impact side of of Haas really called to me and I wanted to be around people who got that. But I feel really grateful for, I think, having seen a, a variety of business models that work and, and Haas was so critical to exposing me to that. It sounds like you've landed a great role, you know, at Nova Help. It's a kind of an impact focus, you know, it's still a, a for-profit company. So there's a good kind of balance of, of yeah. both worlds there. And what you kind of mentioned about negotiations, like that was probably my favorite class and took negotiations in my fall semester of my first year. And just the concept that mm. negotiation is not just one taking from another, it's like a long-term partnership. You should both feel like you've won. It's, mm -hmm. it's so true. And that kind of mindset that, that it taught me was, it was really, really interesting and something I hadn't really considered before. And definitely one thing I've used since and I can imagine it's gonna, gonna stay for, for a long time. Awesome. It's it's been really great chatting. I've been very interested to hear about Nova. You know, I, I first found my company when I was looking for credit cards for the when I was going to be in the US and searched around for ages and couldn't find it. But you know, luckily I was an, an American Express customer mm -hmm. and just saw like a, a small through it and you know give mm -hmm. it a try and, and see what happened. And it was a very easy pro. You know, I think the the work mm -hmm. that Nova's doing is really interesting. It's it's very impactful, and I'm very excited about. The, the future, you know, you can, I can see a time, as, as I kind of mentioned before, where you have this credit score that just follows you around the world, wherever you are. And it's been really great to hear more about the company and, and the work you guys are doing. Yeah, well, thanks for those kind words. It's always nice to chat with a fellow Hasi, but also someone who I think really gets what Nova's doing. So thank you for all the, the kind words and the thoughtful questions. Awesome. Thanks very much for your time, Betsy. Have a great day. Thank you.